like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us, especially on Easter Sunday. So if you are a guest, whether you're here by yourself or whether you're here with friends or with family or whether you're back in town from school or something, we're very glad that you're here. Very glad that you've chosen to spend your Easter morning with us. Last week, we discussed several big pieces of scripture leading up to Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. We simply read the story and we'll be doing the same thing this morning. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I already know the story of Easter. Can't you come up with something a little more creative than that? But as I mentioned last week, it's quite common for us to discover that we don't always know something quite as well as we think we do. Not to mention the story that we're reading this morning, the story that we read last week is a powerful story. A friend of mine works with teachers in a country where most people are not Christians. And as he assigned the Gospels to these teachers, 14 of the 15 not being Christians, he challenged them to read the Gospel accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection and write a response paper. And I recently saw him share this. Many in their response papers wrote that though they'd heard the story of Jesus' death before, they were deeply touched by actually reading it for themselves. It is a powerful story. It's much more powerful when we actually take time to read it, not just when we try to piece it together from things that we've heard over the years. So this week, we'll continue reading the story. This time, we're going to look at what happens after Jesus enters Jerusalem. The rest of the story is dramatic. It's filled with death and betrayal and secret meetings and love and heartache and sacrifice and joy and pain. And we'll unfold this drama of Easter in five parts, all spanning Matthew chapter 26, 27, and 28. So open your Bibles to Matthew 26, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of ours underneath your chair. That'll be located on page 709. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. So Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 1. Before we read that, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Easter. Some of us are here for very different reasons. Some of us are here just because we're visiting family and they wanted to go to church and so we came to. Some of us are here because this is our home church and we couldn't wait to celebrate Easter Sunday. Some of us are here because we don't have a church and this is just kind of what you do on Easter. You go to church somewhere. But regardless of where we're coming from or what our preconceived notions are about who you are or what experiences we've had with this story, I pray that you will give us ears to hear, open hearts and open minds to just read this story for what it is. God, I pray that this story would impact each one of us in a special way that you know how to use it to impact us. I pray that your word would be powerful this morning. I pray that your spirit would be at work amongst us. God, thank you for Easter. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the absolute privilege that I have of reading this story and the absolute privilege that we have of hearing it all together. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Matthew 26, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, 
You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So the passage starts off with Jesus again predicting his death. Last week, we talked about three different times where Jesus predicted his death as they're on the road to Jerusalem. And each prediction had a little bit more detail than the one before. The first prediction was just about being killed and suffering and being raised. And the second one had hints of betrayal in it. And the third one specifically mentioned the word crucified. We've already looked at three predictions, but here we have a fourth. And this one's just a little bit different. The context has changed because with this prediction, this time around, they're inside the city of Jerusalem. There's no turning back now. They've already walked through those gates. On the way there, the disciples maybe could have abandoned ship. They maybe could have gotten off before this whole thing went really, really bad. Maybe they were holding out hope that we're still not in Jerusalem yet. Things could change. Jesus could change his plans. Maybe it won't actually happen the way he's saying it will. But now they're in the city. Now it's only a matter of time before these predictions come true. Meanwhile, the religious leaders are plotting. They have an informal meeting in the high priest's palace. You can picture them all standing in this darkened room with the doors locked and the curtains pulled, standing around a table, arguing about what they're going to do with this Jesus guy. They all agree that they have to figure out some way to take Jesus out once and for all. They're fed up with his confrontations, his challenges, his insults. They've had enough of Jesus undermining their authority over the people. And that's just within the last week since he came into town, much less over the past several years of his ministry. But these religious leaders, even though they're angry, even though they're plotting, they're no fools. They know that they have to be very careful if they want this plan to work. They know that Jesus is not just some random guy. He's a popular teacher. Some people believe he's a prophet. He just got a royal welcome when he came into town. Getting rid of him, killing him, could prove to be a major challenge. We pick up in verse 6 of Matthew 26. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So they enter the home of Simon the leper, one of Jesus's followers, a man that Jesus most likely healed earlier in his ministry. 
And Matthew records that a nameless woman comes in and anoints Jesus with an expensive ointment or an expensive perfume. The Gospel of Mark records that it could have been worth almost a year's wage. This is good stuff that this woman is using. Jesus accepts her kindness. He tells the disciples that she is anointing him and preparing him for his burial. He considers it an honor. He's touched by this woman's gesture, even though initially the disciples are furious. They look at this ointment, this perfume, and they think about how much money could have been given to the poor or maybe how much money could have been given to their own budget. But Jesus praises the nameless woman. He honors the nameless woman. He says that her story will be heard all throughout the world when people preach the gospel. We'll come back to her in just a minute. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. So behind the scenes, Judas is planning how he's going to betray Jesus. He even takes the initiative to find the religious leaders and ask them what kind of offer they might be able to make. They don't even have to come and find him. Judas agrees to hand Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver, roughly a month's wage. Now think about Judas and think about that nameless woman who anointed Jesus. Think of the contrast that we see between these two people. This woman gave up a year's wage just to symbolically honor Jesus before his death. Meanwhile, Judas has no problem betraying his Lord for just a month's wage. The difference between these two people is astounding. The wheels in the story are turning. The religious leaders have to be thrilled with how things have gone so far. They're wondering how they can get rid of Jesus. They're trying to put some kind of plan together. And just like clockwork, in walks Judas, looking to betray him. And not only that, Judas's betrayal is cheap. Everything seems to be coming together just right for the religious leaders. Throughout the rest of Matthew 26, verses 17 through 46, Jesus and his disciples celebrate the Passover meal. Jesus again predicts that he'll be betrayed by one of his disciples. He knows who it is, but the other disciples appear to be clueless. Jesus teaches the disciples that from now on, when they celebrate the Passover, it won't be about God delivering his people from Egypt. It will be about Jesus' broken body and shed blood, a new covenant. Jesus predicts that all the disciples will abandon him, Peter in the most spectacular manner, denying him publicly three times. The meal moves to Gethsemane. The disciples go along with Jesus, and in a moment of incredible vulnerability, Jesus prays and asks God to take the suffering and death that he's about to endure away from him. Take this cup from me. But he closes the prayer with some powerful words, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. That's part one of the story. Things are quickly progressing. And then we get to part two. Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56. 
while he was still speaking that prayer in Gethsemane, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. He used to call him Lord. Now he calls him Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all of the disciples left him and fled. Just as the prayer ends, Judas enters the scene and he's followed by what sounds like an angry mob. Judas kisses Jesus to signal who should be taken away, who should be arrested. The Gospel of John tells us that it's Peter is the one who takes out his sword and tries to fight. He's even able to cut off the ear of a prominent servant. But then Jesus rebukes him. Sounds kind of familiar to what we talked about last week. When Peter confronted Jesus on the road after that prediction and said, Lord, may this never happen to you. This death and suffering and resurrection. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is not on the things of God, but your mind is on the things of man. Once again, Peter tries to take things into his own hands. But Jesus makes it clear. He could stop this if he wanted to. He says he could call down an army of angels from God and they could blow this mob right out of the water, no matter how many swords or how many clubs they have. But he doesn't stop it. Remember the prayer? Not my will, but yours be done. When this happens, the disciples flee. They try to save their own skin. Pick up in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power 
and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit him in the face, spit in his face, and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Jesus is brought to Caiaphas, the high priest, under the cover of night. Peter sneaks along to see, because after all, everyone loves a good train wreck. They try to bring false witnesses against Jesus, but truth be told, they really don't have much of a case against Jesus. The best thing they have is Jesus talking about the temple being destroyed and rebuilt in three days. But any lunatic can say that and not be punished by death. The truth is that if Jesus will just choose his words wisely, or better yet, if he'll just keep his mouth shut, he can probably get out of this predicament that he finds himself in. But then Jesus responds. He doesn't just give a yes or no answer. He doesn't just give a simple response. He quotes Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, referring to himself as the Son of God, sitting at the right hand of God. A clear-cut case of blasphemy. The religious leaders tear their robes. They're shocked, they're angry, they're offended. But deep down, they're tickled to death. They had little to no case against Jesus. And then he goes and says something like that? He's making getting rid of him far too easy. Now, by the time that confrontation is complete, Peter has denied Jesus three times, just like Jesus said he would. Jesus is all alone now, completely abandoned by his disciples, just like he said he would be. And if you didn't know any better, you might think that Jesus is in control of this whole situation. But then we get to part three. In Matthew 27, Jesus is brought before Pilate. Caiaphas can bring charges against Jesus, and Caiaphas can recommend a punishment, but only Pilate has the authority to actually see the punishment through. Off on another set, Judas is racked with guilt and regret, and he returns the money he received for his betrayal and kills himself. Pilate is amazed by Jesus. He's not sure what to make of Jesus as he talks with him. He finds it astonishing that Jesus makes no effort whatsoever to defend himself. It's almost as if this guy wants to die. Not only that, Pilate's wife warns him that there's something different about this guy. She tells him that she had a strange dream, and she would really just prefer if Pilate could kind of keep his distance from this Jesus. He's not just some regular old criminal. As a result... Pilate starts looking for a way out. He knows the religious leaders, how petty and political this whole thing probably is. He's heard the warning from his wife. He's not interested in getting involved. So as Pilate thinks to how he can get out of this situation, he offers Barabbas, a violent criminal, in Jesus' place. 
He probably is thinking that surely the people would be content to let Jesus just leave town with his tail between his legs, having learned his lesson, rather than releasing a violent criminal to walk the streets. Surely the people wouldn't want that. But the people want Barabbas. The plan fails. Pilate probably thought he had his way out of this whole situation. We read in Matthew 27, verses 24 through 26. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Pilate gives in. There's obviously no way that he can please everyone, and this whole situation seems to be subject to forces far stronger than any of his political maneuvering. He wants no part of this, so he just hands Jesus over. He washes his hands of the whole thing, pretending that he can just forget that it ever happened. At least now he can go home and tell his wife that he tried to get out of the whole situation, even if it didn't work. In Matthew 27, verses 27 through 44, Jesus is mocked. They strip him of his clothes. They put a sarcastic royal robe on him. They make him a crown of thorns, give him a fake staff. They spit on him. They lead him out to be crucified. He entered that city a humble king. He leaves now a humiliated criminal. He carries his cross as far as he's physically able after his beating. Then a bystander named Simon carries it the rest of the way. He's raised up on that cross, nails driven through his wrists and through his feet. A sign hangs above him that reads, King of the Jews. His clothes are divided up. After all, he won't be needing them anymore. He's mocked again by those who are watching this all happen. They say things like, if you're really the son of God, come down from there. If you're really the son of God, won't God save you? It sounds a lot like when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. If you're really the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you're really the son of God, jump off the top of the temple. Won't God save you? If you're really the son of God, come down from that cross. Several hours pass. By this point, the land is dark. You can almost cut the tension in the story with a knife. And that's part four. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. As he hangs on that cross, Jesus cries out, quoting Psalm 22. It's a psalm that simultaneously talks about being forsaken by God, but also shows confidence in God's righteousness and in God's deliverance. And then Matthew says that Jesus yields up his spirit. 
That's an interesting phrase to describe someone dying. Yields up his spirit. It's almost as if Jesus died when he was good and ready. Even while hanging on the cross, he has control over what's happening. Throughout the rest of Matthew chapter 27, Jesus' death causes the curtain in the temple to be torn in two from top to bottom. A massive earthquake breaks open tombs. Matthew specifically mentions that saints come out of the tombs alive, people who have been dead for a long time. Some people read this passage and wonder whether that actually happened or if Matthew is intentionally using over-the-top imagery to show the magnitude of this event. But regardless of how you interpret that passage, one thing is clear. For Matthew, Jesus' death makes dead men live. The witnesses are amazed at what they're seeing. Even the men who drove those nails through his wrists and through his feet cannot believe their eyes. Jesus is buried in a fresh tomb provided by one of his followers. There's plenty of security around. There's guards. There's a large stone. You almost have to wonder, is Pilate still a little bit spooked by this whole situation? Now, if you stop right here, it's a tragic story. An up-and-coming teacher cut down too young. A poor young man, victim of circumstances, who got on the bad side of the wrong people and bit off a little bit more than he could chew and paid the ultimate price. You might think that the religious leaders finally won after all those times where Jesus left them with egg on their face. You might even say that Satan finally won. But then we get to part five, Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. He's risen, just like he said he would be. The religious leader's plan couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't just brush the whole thing away. The people couldn't just forget about him. The disciples couldn't just move on with life. The tomb could not contain him. Death could not defeat him. He truly is risen. Now, I wanted to tell you this story for several reasons. The first reason is that for this Easter morning sermon, it's all I have. I don't have any gimmicks, no games, 
No revolutionary interpretations, no creative ideas, no cutting-edge illustrations. That's all I have, this story. And as a preacher, ultimately, that's all I ever have every single Sunday that I stand up here. And as a Christian, that's all you really have every morning that you wake up, the story that we just read. Another reason I wanted to tell you the story is that sometimes I see myself in it. Sometimes I look in the mirror and I see Judas. I see a man who is all too willing to betray Jesus for momentary pleasure or idols that only lead to regret and guilt. Sometimes I look in the mirror and I see Peter. I see a man who publicly proclaims faith in what God is doing, but when things get out of control, I'm the first to reach for my sword and try to fix everything. But even during those times where I feel like Judas or I feel like Peter, I also see other people in the mirror. I look in the mirror and I see Barabbas. I see a man who was once sitting in a jail cell, waiting for my just punishment, minding my own business, and yet somehow, because of Jesus, I'm walking free. I look in the mirror and I see one of those dead men from the tombs, a cold and lifeless body. And yet somehow, because of Jesus' death, I'm alive. I see myself in this story. And maybe you see yourself too. And finally, I wanted to share this story because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the story is of first importance. If you're a Christian, I beg of you, don't ever forget this story. Don't ever grow tired of this story. Don't ever let this story be anything less than of first importance in every phase of your life. And if you're not a Christian, I beg of you, believe this story. Christ has lived. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And this story will change your eternity. I pray that as Christians will remember it, and I pray that non-Christians will believe it. Let's pray. Father, in the big scheme of things, the church, Christians, we don't really have a whole lot to offer the world outside of this story. Without this story, everything falls apart. Without this story, we have no purpose, we have no meaning, We have no life. God, I pray that we would keep this story central in everything that we say and in everything that we do. I pray that we would see ourselves in the story, not as the heroes, not as the wonderful people, but I pray that we would see ourselves for who we really are, hopeless, confused, lost, but also redeemed, saved, adopted, justified, all those things. I pray that this story would constantly remind us of who you are and what you've done, and as a result of that, who we are. Thank you for the story. Thank you that you sent your son to die on a cross on our behalf, to take the punishment that we deserved. Thank you that he rose from the grave. 
And that that same power that raised him from the dead will raise us from the dead as well. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for the cross. And thank you for the empty tomb. And thank you for this story that we share. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You have a role in this story. And if you don't know what that role is, you don't know where you fit in the story of God redeeming his people, I would challenge you to talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to answer your questions, happy to share their own stories of how Christ redeemed them and how Christ saved them. So as we sing this last song, talk to one of those guys. They'd be happy to talk with you. And I hope and pray that you'll have a happy and safe Easter.